Our reading this morning is from Hebrews um, chapter 4, reading verses 14 to 16. At Village, the Bible is central to everything we do. The Bible is God's primary way of speaking to his people, and it shapes everything we believe and everything we do. Because of this, after the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we will all respond together, thanks be to God. So let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from Hebrews chapter 4, reading verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. That's great. Um, I hope you're all well. It's really great to be back here with you again this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nick. I'm one of the elders at Village. Uh, but I, along with my family, my wife and our two girls, um, I attend Village East. So if you're thinking you haven't seen me before, you maybe haven't. Uh, before I start, I just want to do what I always do and extend uh, to you greetings from all of your brothers and sisters at Village East. And just to remind you that you're all often in our minds and in our prayers. And uh, we would continue to give thanks for all of you and, and what God's doing in and through all of you here at Village South. So please be assured of our ongoing prayers for you all. If you have your Bibles, keep them open at this morning's reading. We're in Hebrews 4, uh, verses 14 to 16. And we're continuing in our series this morning in Hebrews entitled, Jesus is Better. And this morning we're looking at three verses, three really rich verses, uh, which if they were to be described as anything, I think we could call them a, a spoiler for the whole epistle of Hebrews. George Guthrie calls these three verses the crystallization of the message of Hebrews, the major themes of the complete book condensed into just three verses. And as we progress through, um, as we progress through these verses today, we're going to see the narrative of, of the epistle pivot slightly. These verses can, can be seen as a bit of a transition from the first three chapters of the book that we've been in in the past few weeks into the next section, which is going to take us right up to chapter 10. These three verses hark back to chapters 1 to 3, and in particular, the, the exhortations that we've seen over the past few weeks, the exhortations to hold firm, to consider Jesus, and to pay closer attention. But by the end of them, they're going to, to turn firmly towards what we'll see to be the central message of the book of Hebrews, the mess, that message being the exposition of the high priesthood of Jesus. So as we're here at this crossroads in the book, and we're set to embark on this next section, we have this little summary here in these three verses of what we've come through and what we can expect. Over these next five chapters, we're going to see all of the glorious ways in which Jesus is our high priest and in which he is better than the high priests of the Old Testament. But before we do that, and in these three verses today, we're going to see some really practical exhortations and encouragements from the writer that hinge on that priesthood that we'll be looking at in more detail over the coming weeks. Now at this point, I want to just pause briefly before we look at verses 14 to 16 themselves. And I want us to just consider this, this word priest or high priest, because I think often there can be a danger that, that we detach ourselves from some of the, the context that we see here. 
The parallels and, and the comparisons that are being drawn between Jesus and the Old Testament priesthood can seem academic to us at times. And I think particularly if, like, like all of us here, I think, um, particularly if we don't have a background in the Jewish religious tradition. It can take a certain level of, of mental investment on our own part to understand the connections that are there. But as we'll see over the coming weeks, this is still so important to us today. Because you see, God didn't think after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that there were some really neat parallels between Jesus and the priests of the Old Testament. This, the, the, the sort of whole entire nation of Israel as we see it in the Old Testament, in the Levitical line and the priesthood, was God's vehicle which over hundreds of years redemptive plan for the world. Set aside would, would undermine the narrative of the Old Testament and would undermine uh, some of what Scripture tells us about God's character and sovereignty and how he has always been at work in all of creation for his purposes. So that's just a brief aside, but try and remember that and bear that in mind over these next weeks and pray that we would all grasp something, grasp something new or more fully about the person and character of our Savior as we explore how God was communicating him hundreds of years in advance. So before we set off over these next few weeks into the core of this epistle, we're going to consider these few verses this morning. And we're going to see two exhortations from the writer, and each of them have their own spiritual truth or encouragement attached. And as we read them, we'll see that, that the encouragement comes before the exhortation in each case. So the first encouragement we see is found in verse 14, which reads, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So the writer is first telling us here that since, or, or we can read because we have Jesus as our great high priest, that, he, that is our, our, our mediator, our intercessor, the one who grants us access to a holy God who would otherwise be off limits to us. Because this high priest of ours is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who has passed through the heavens, that is the reason or the basis or the spiritual truth on which these exhortations are going to follow. If we look back at verses 12 to 13 of this chapter, we see that the writer tells us that the word of God pierces and divides and discerns our hearts and thoughts and intentions and that we are all laid bare and exposed to the God to whom we must give an account. Now this is a scary thought that, that we who are with sin must give an account of ourselves to him who is without sin. I think fear is a natural reaction to this prospect, fear of judgment or the fear of standing in the presence of an infinitely holy God. And under the old covenant, for centuries, God's people could only wait outside the temple where God's presence lay veiled, wondering how he would one day make a way for them. You see, for the Israelites living under the old covenant, if you did not belong to the tribe of Levi, 90 feet is as close as you would ever get to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. This being the, the innermost sanctuary of the temple where only the high priest was allowed to go once a year on the Day of Atonement. And God's presence in this way was his fulfillment of the promise to dwell among his people that we see in Leviticus, but his holiness and his sinlessness demanded this, this separation and this distance from sin. He was near and among the people, yet guarded. He was present, yet veiled. He was inviting, yet intimidating. 
The mere presence of God among his people in this way and, and the structure of the temple revealed God's desire to be near his people. But everything about it said, you dare not approach me on your own. First Kings chapter 6 tells us that it was the same cherubim that once wielded swords at the entrance of Eden in Genesis 3, now blocked the way to the Holy of Holies. And anyone who broke through that barrier would fall before a consuming fire. And so every day to the Israelites, the temple preached a warning or a silent sermon to anyone willing to hear it, that you cannot access God by yourself. You need a mediator to make atonement. You need an advocate to intercede. You needed a priest to make a way. What our author here is saying you don't need to be afraid of this prospect of standing before a holy God. Because you must remember that you now have a high priest. And as we'll see in this section, a high priest who is better in every way to those of the old covenant. A high priest who is Jesus, the very son of God, who has passed through the heavens and taken his seat at the right hand of God to intercede for us. The writer is saying he is our representative and our advocate. Or as Dan Ortland puts it, He is both our eternal friend and our defense attorney. And so because of this truth, this this sort of encouragement, we then see the first exhortation that the writer gives us here, again in verse 14, when he says, let us hold fast our confession. Now, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you'll know that this isn't an entirely new exhortation in this book. We've already encountered encountered this or or a similar appeal in chapter 3, where the writer spoke of holding fast and holding our confidence firm to the end. And we've seen that it is our, our holding firm that is the evidence. That's not the reason, but the evidence of our salvation. But here the writer is telling us that because Jesus is our great high priest, we have all the more reason to hold firmly to our confession of faith in him. In other words, the writer is saying, don't despair in your faith, regardless of your circumstances. Don't give up hope. Don't abandon your confidence in Christ. Why? Because it is him who is he who is your great high priest. He, the son of God, sitting at the right hand, advocating and interceding for us. So we see here, first of all, that that because of who our high priest is, we are to hold fast to our confession. The second encouragement and then, and then exhortation um, is found in verse 15. The encouragement starts with, for, for, do we, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now to try and understand why our author says what he does say about Jesus in this verse, we need to bear in mind that that very real and dangerous element of separation that the Israelites experienced from the presence of God. And, and just the sheer absurdity um, to those from this tradition of, of the notion of being able to draw near to God. Thinking of Jesus as, as a high priest in this Old Testament mold could imply a natural detachment between Jesus and us or a distance from us that, that would mean an indifference towards our needs, our worries and our fears. That perhaps because he's already done what he has done for us, he couldn't possibly be, in, be interested in our day-to-day trials, could he? But no, our author here says that that's not the kind of high priest that he is. 
He's a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. He does offer compassion and help because he has shared in an important aspect of what it means to be human, having been tempted in every way, just as we are. Jesus, our high priest, is not like the priests of the old covenant, like Aaron, who themselves were sinners and had to offer sacrifices for their own transgressions. Jesus instead was tempted and suffered just like us and can therefore sympathize with our weaknesses, but yet he never yielded to temptation. We read this earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, where it says that for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What an encouragement that is. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't tempted with the same expressions of sin that we are today or that we see in the world today. He wasn't tempted to pull out a gun and shoot someone in cold blood. He wasn't tempted to commit insurance fraud. He wasn't tempted to look at pornography on the internet. These particular expressions of sin are are unique and specific to our century and the time in which we live. But the essence of sin has always been the same. Jesus was tempted with the same unrighteous anger and greed and lust and hatred and every other sinful temptation that we still face today. And let's think just for a minute of some of what Jesus did experience while on earth. We see in Matthew chapter 8 that he was homeless. We see in in all of the Gospels that his, his family thought he was crazy. His best friends turned their back on him. In Matthew 26, we see one of his closest confidants selling him to be killed for pocket change. Luke chapter 4 shows us him standing toe-to-toe with the devil and enduring everything that the devil threw at him. He deals with the death of of people close to him. He endures gossip and slander. He endured suffering for righteousness' sake. He was shamed publicly. He endured periods of hunger. He received criticism of his ministry. His theology was mocked. His message was rejected. His preaching was critiqued. His disciples and those closest to him didn't understand what he was talking about. And he endured complete and utter separation from God so that you and I would never, ever have to. Matthew chapter 27 reads that at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now when when we consider that, which isn't an exhaustive list by any means, I don't think any of us could argue that we face any level of temptation to react in an unrighteous or sinful way to our circumstances that Jesus did not face in his. The reality is that there is nothing in this world that anyone has gone through, is going through, or will ever go through that Jesus cannot relate to, or sympathize with us in, or encourage us in. He faced all temptation without yielding to a sinful reaction. And so he knows the battles that we face every day. He doesn't roll his eyes at our pain and our suffering. He doesn't shrug his shoulders with indifference to what we're enduring. He sympathizes with us. That is to show an experiential understanding of what we ourselves are experiencing. So what then does the writer exhort us to in light of this second encouragement and the second truth that he has just um, explained to us. Second exhortation is found in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. 
Now, we can read the word then as, as therefore, so to, to kind of link that together, it is because we have a high priest who knows what we face and feel in our battle with temptation that we therefore must draw near to the throne of grace when we're in a mess and when we need help. Now, we've already seen in this series of what it looks like to hold fast or to hold firm, but this second exhortation is a new one. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne. I want us to consider just briefly this morning what this means and to try and and to some extent grasp just what a privilege and a help it really is to be able to draw near. Ian Ortland in his work in Hebrews has broken sort of the, the exploration of this into four questions, and I'm, I'm going to borrow those questions from Dan this morning, um, just to give us a picture of what this drawing near looks like. So the first thing we ask then is, first of all, where are we to go to? Have you ever found yourself in a situation when you, haven't, you truly haven't known what to do, or where to turn, or who to trust, or where you'll find the grace that you so desperately need? Or perhaps such is the trial or temptation that you find yourself in that you don't even fully understand what it is you need or what it is you should pray for. The writer tells us that in these times, draw near to the throne of grace. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word throne. For me, it it, it throws up images of a king or a sovereign ruler. And God is the great creator and eternal king of our universe. But knowing this should create a sense of expectancy in our hearts. When we need grace and we're coming for our souls and we're coming to the throne of the king of kings for this, we should come expectant of a measure of grace that is in accordance with who he is. But maybe, however, instead of this expectancy, there's a tendency to feel more intimidated more intimidated than encouraged by the, the idea of this throne and approaching the throne of a sovereign, holy king of the universe. But see here, this is a throne of grace. Our author could have, but didn't say, the throne of God or the throne of heaven. Both of those would have been perfectly true and accurate. But as Dan Ortland writes, it is grace that awaits us there. It is grace that sits enthroned. It is not a throne of law or of criticism or of judgment, but of grace. The purpose of this throne is not to condemn, but to provide grace to those who seek it out. And being a throne of grace means that our prayers will always be heard and always be answered with grace. No matter how trivial or, or frivolous they seem to us, or how badly conceived, or thought out, or even spoken our prayers may be at times, God hears us. Because this is not a throne of perfection or precision. It's a throne of grace. We saw time and time again last year when we we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, God isn't impressed with outward appearances of spiritual etiquette, or knowing the right words to say, or praying lofty prayers. All he looks for is humility and desperation in those who would petition him and that it would be him that they would turn to in their times of need. And what's more, God knows that we're not good at this. And so he provides us with the grace to come to him in the first place as we are. 
So ask him today for grace to love him, to obey him, to enjoy him. Ask him for the, the grace to come to him in the first place, to come frequently, even as faltering and as failing as we are. And what about those times when we don't know how to pray or what to pray for? Because this is a throne of grace and because it is the throne of the King of Kings, God knows our desires and our needs, even when we do not or even when we can't express them. Have you ever witnessed a young child or a toddler trying to convey something that they want or need? And as they're doing so, they realize that they don't quite have the vocabulary to express that. Um, my wife tells me off for laughing when this happens in our household sometimes, but it is, it, is, it is amusing at times. But when my daughter does this, I don't criticize her. I'm not provoked to anger. I help her in any way that I can. I even offer her the words that I know she needs. And in fact, more than that, more often than not, I've already moved to action as a parent to meet the need of hers before she has even expressed that it is there. So if we as human parents are, are capable of this, how much more is our Heavenly Father capable of doing this for us? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He will put the desires and put the expression of those desires into your spirit by his grace. He will direct your desires to the things which you ought to seek for. He will teach you your wants, though as yet you know them not. He will suggest to you his promises that you may be able to plead them. He will, in fact, be Alpha and Omega to your prayer, just as he is to your salvation. For as salvation is from first to last of grace, so the sinner's approach to the throne of grace is of grace from first to last. Because this is a throne of grace that we come to, nothing is required of us but our need. Like all things in the kingdom of God, we can be tempted to add to this, but there is nothing that we can bring. And in fact, when we try to add anything, we end up taking away from it. I think there's often times when with a very Northern Irish sense of false modesty, we feel like we couldn't or shouldn't possibly need God to care about certain things in our lives because of what he's already done for us. That it would be too much to ask. Or that there's certain things that we should just have control of by ourselves. And so despite what we know about his grace and his mercy towards us in dying for our sins, we for some reason turn to our own strivings and efforts. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we see the account of the proud Syrian commander, Naaman, who having been struck with leprosy, is told by an Israelite slave girl that Elisha the prophet could provide him with healing. Elisha then instructs Naaman that all he has to do in order to be healed is bathe in the Jordan River. But Naaman is proud. Naaman thinks that he could or should be able to contribute something to his healing. But it's this pride itself that is the obstacle for Naaman. The one thing that was required of him to bring to the table was nothing, but this was the very thing he was unwilling to bring. Because our access to this throne is not acquired by works. God doesn't want a sacrifice or good intentions or gifts because the sacrifice has already been paid. The sacrifice has been paid by the high priest himself. Instead, 
He wants our desperation, our helplessness, in order that he would be glorified by the sufficiency of his grace at work for us. So we are to come to the throne of grace. Secondly then, how often should we come? The verb here that translates as let us draw near conveys a sense of an approach that never ends. It's it's a present tense ongoing verb. Our, Our approach is to be a daily or even hourly or just constant and continuous approach to the throne. We are to constantly come near God. The reality is that nothing happens in or through or by our lives but for God. And when we acknowledge that, we're aware that there is nothing in life in which we do not need God and his grace. And there is therefore never a time when it's inappropriate to draw near to him. There's never a time when he's not available to us. And there's never a circumstance that makes approaching the throne a bad idea. Now, we've talked in Village a lot over the past year or two about this idea of abiding with Jesus or or practicing the presence, as Brother Lawrence describes it. And this attitude or, or posture of turning to him so often and so readily as our sort of default spiritual reaction, that, that in reality our whole life would be spent in constant dialogue and conversation with him. Brother Lawrence paints a picture of this when he talks about so practicing the presence of our Savior that the time he spent washing dishes with his Lord was no less precious to him than time spent praying in quiet solitude. This notion would have been entirely foreign to those steeped in the rituals of the old covenant system. Under the old covenant, the only person allowed into God's presence was the high priest on one day of the year. And although the high priest represented the people, he stood between God and the people, and the people were still locked out of God's presence. Their approach was forbidden, but here we are invited, we're indeed commanded to come always and to come at every point of need. As we'll see over the coming weeks, the Old Testament high priests were figures who stood between God and his people. However, Jesus' high priesthood represents open, unrestricted access to God. And he has made our approach to God possible because he has first approached us. Third question then, how should we approach God? The author answers this question really simply with a single word, with confidence. We are to draw near with confidence that comes from knowing that we have a great high priest who knows our thoughts, our hurts, our fears, and our deepest desires. But this confidence is is not just based on what God has done, but in who we are as a result of what God has done, his adopted, blood-bought children. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? The raven is, is only a bird and a fairly, fairly lowly one at that. And in nature, a raven's death means little. Whereas we, on the other hand, are immortal souls, the pinnacle of God's creation, made in his image. So how then could God hear the cry of the raven but turn a deaf ear to ours? 
No raven has ever been formed in, in God's image, and yet if God would provide for the needs of such an insignificant creature, will he not happily and generously provide for yours and mine needs? So come to the throne of grace with confidence. To take the analogy further, when a raven cries out, it is a purely natural and instinctive cry. There's no words or formulated appeals. The raven doesn't even know that it's appealing to someone. And yet the father graciously cares for its needs. So how much more will he then care for your needs and mine as his blood-bought, redeemed, and adopted children? Nowhere are ravens commanded to cry to God, yet we are repeatedly exhorted to do so. We have been given unrestricted license and freedom to come to this gracious throne. Ravens aren't told to come, and yet they never go away empty. Whereas you and I come as invited guests. How then shall we be denied by a gracious Father who has invited us in the first place? When the ravens cry to God, they do so alone. But when we cry, we cry jointly with our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only knows experientially why we are crying out, but who is also the one interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. So we come then to the throne of grace with confidence. We come with confidence, as Tim Keller says, like the unrestrained child of a king who has the confidence to waken that king from his night's sleep to merely ask him for a glass of water. Last question then, what can we expect to find at the throne of grace? As the name suggests, we find grace. We, of course, find sympathy and understanding, but grace is more than that. And the purpose of prayer and of of drawing near isn't primarily that we might feel better, but that we might get grace that will be the help and the strength in our moment of need. When we come boldly and confidently to the throne of grace, God doesn't just feel sorry for us. His purpose isn't to pity us or to appease our feelings. Likewise, he isn't waiting at the throne to cut the legs from under us like an abusive, overly strict parent who berates and puts down. He hasn't been keeping record of our lack of recent interaction up until our latest request to decide whether or not he'll be willing to hear us out. If that was God's response, this would not be described as a throne of grace. And this is also why it's so pointless for us to attempt to clean ourselves up before approaching the throne or to try and factor in some socially acceptable amount of small talk with God before bringing our requests to him. When we do this, we're right back to earning our right to draw near to him with our works and pretty rubbish works at that. God doesn't make fun of us either. He doesn't mock or ridicule us. He doesn't openly hold us up against the marker of a perfectly consistent prayer life. So what is this grace then that we get when we come to the throne of God? Well, it's not merely instruction or advice or encouragement to cheer us on. The grace that we're afforded in temptation and in trial when we confidently approach the throne is the power of the Holy Spirit that energizes and empowers us to do that which God has called us to do. Grace is the power of God at work in our lives as he dwells among us, shaping us and working in us to change us as we spend time in his presence, in his refuge, experiencing just how sweet that is. 
And as this happens, grace changes how we feel. And as our affections grow for Jesus, so too does our revulsion for sin. Grace changes how and what we choose. It creates new and deeper desires for what we once found unappealing. Grace changes how we act. It equips and energizes the soul to do what we have failed to do so many times before. Ian Ortland puts it this way. If we are to have hope for holiness, we must have the heart-changing, mind-changing, will-changing work of divine grace that is sovereignly bestowed when heart-weak, mind-weak, and will-weak people ask for it from the only place it can be found, the throne of grace. This is what Paul speaks about in Philippians 2 when he writes of God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If we are to resist temptation, if we are to say no to sin and to walk in purity and integrity of heart, God must be at work within us. When Paul says that God works in us so that we might will what is right, he's speaking of the grace that is the Holy Spirit creating in us a desire and a love and an inclination to embrace that which pleases the Father. When Paul then says that God works in us so that we might work what is right, what he means is that the continuous and sustained working out on the part of the Christian is the gracious byproduct of the continuous and sustained working in on the part of God. So this grace that we receive when we approach the throne is the help that God so freely supplies in response to the humble prayer of those who rely on him to follow him. God helps by imparting to our souls a new taste for things that are, are above and for things that are of himself, that we might increasingly treasure Christ above all else. He helps by infusing our hearts with a new disposition, a way of thinking, a passion for the joy of enjoying him. And this help is grace. Because without it, we're just sinners striving on our own efforts. And as Paul describes in Romans 7, we'll have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. We are to treasure Jesus above all else and experience the surpassing worth of knowing him. Our hearts must be fed with grace. If we're to say no to the pleasures of this world and this life and all the temporal things that it holds, we need grace. See and know and believe that Jesus is better. We need the grace that only he imparts. And so we must come as we're instructed, confidently, frequently, humbly, to the throne where it is found and is waiting and ready to be a timely help to our every need. And all we must do is ask. So if we are to hold fast our confession if we are to live a life pleasing to our Savior out of what he has done for us, we must come to the throne of grace. All we can do is come empty and needy with an open hand and an open heart and let God fill us with grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Because Jesus sits at the right hand of his Father in heaven, repentant sinners can approach the throne of God with boldness and with confidence no matter how filthy we feel. 
We can come with empty hands and nothing to show for ourselves. We can come when we've just woken up from the stupidity of sin, even when we feel at our most undeserving. And we can do so because we do not come on our own merits, but rather the merits of Jesus, heaven's great high priest, the lamb who was slain for our sins. So we've seen in these three verses and the exhortations contained the requirements to hold fast and draw near, the reason that we can draw near, which is Jesus, our great and sympathetic high priest, and we also see the great resource of grace that is available, us, available to us when we do so. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19 tells us that we love him because he first loved us. And so too, we can hold fast to him by drawing near to him because he has first held fast and drawn near to us. In first approaching us, Jesus has made our approach to him possible. And maybe you've never approached this throne before, but if that is the case, please know that the same grace awaits anyone who approaches this throne in humility and brings nothing to offer other than their need for a saviour. The grace afforded to sustain us is the same grace that saves us in the first place. So come now, don't delay. And brothers and sisters, come often. Come as you are, come empty-handed, and come confidently because of who our great high priest is. He not only intercedes for us, but he has paid the price for us. Come and be fed with grace. The grace of God is willing and working in our lives, continuing to shape and to mold us into a greater likeness of his son, bringing us joy and bringing glory to his name. Stand with me and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace your grace to us as undeserving as we are. Thank you for your son and his complete and atoning work on our behalf. Thank you that we don't stand in separation from you, but that we can confidently and boldly approach your throne of grace and that there our hearts and souls are fed all we could ever require. Make us so aware of our need for you, Jesus. May we never neglect the privilege we have to be able to plead and petition our Heavenly Father with you as our advocate. Help us to love you. Help us to want you, Jesus. Help us to draw near to you regularly, confidently, expectantly, and faithfully. That we would truly abide with you and know the sweetness of your presence all the more. For it's in your grace we ask. It's for your glory.